Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Um, today's Throwback Thursday episode is, is is going back to 2018, talking to Alex Martin. This was not hosted by me. I think I took over the show like right after this episode uh, aired. I think this might have been the last episode done by Kurt. Um, but I did edit this episode, and that was one of my first, so hopefully it's Sounds okay. But anyway, um, Alex was 18 year old, eighteen years old when he did this trip, 1,750 miles around the edge of Lake Winnipeg. It sounds incredible. Sounds absolutely incredible. I, I love the thought of doing something like that. I've done stuff like this before on very small lakes, you know, uh, compared to this, you know, day trips. But, and I also love when people of, of this age do trips. I, I did a lot of my big trips at a pretty young age, early 20s, so a little older than Alex here. Well, probably the age Alex is now, uh, because this was almost five years ago now. Four years ago, I'm sorry. And um, gosh, I I love it. You know, he didn't have an idea for what he wanted to do after school and decided to do this. And I remember when I graduated college, I didn't have a plan either. I didn't have internships or a job or anything. All I wanted to do was bike tour. And so I spent the next you know, I planned on the next six months being out on the road, um, on and off road, doing different routes across the country, um, and visiting like 30 national parks. And, and, and honestly, um, for not having a plan, I think I landed pretty well, you know, took, took, took some time, definitely took a lot more time than my peers, but I think I landed on my feet. And after hosting this show a while led to some other things. Now, if you don't know, I work at athletic brewing, um, non-alcoholic craft beer, uh, I was there in the very early days, uh, which was an opportunity that came about from the podcast. And crazy enough, today we were selected. It was announced that we were selected as one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential companies in the world. Isn't that crazy? And that came from this podcast, just uh, knowing Bill, who uh, is the owner and founder of, of Athletic Brewing, was a fan of the show. And reached out one day and uh, we connected. But um, yeah, just goes to show you, you don't have to know everything. You know, that's what adventure is all about is seeing what's around the corner, seeing what's around the next bend, what's in that cove. Can I paddle into that cove? There were many times Alex encountered, you know, what's that over there kind of mentality. So you, you, maybe you don't have a plan either out there. I know I'm ranting at this point, but um, I don't know. Just love this story. It's been a great day, obviously big deal for athletic brewing and just contemplating today just how how you get here, how you get to where you're going and do you even know where you're going half the time and frankly, I don't. So, but what I do know is this is a great story, so let's go ahead and jump in. Hey friends, welcome back to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I have Alex Martin with us today, and Alex did the coolest thing this summer. I should kick this off by saying that he's 18 years old, just not been 18 for all that long, and he circumnavigated solo, first person to do this, Lake Winnipeg. And I think it's the coolest thing. He's a he's a great guy, and I can't wait to hear about this trip and uh, how we got going doing this. So, Alex, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, it's so cool what you did. And when I heard that you were going to do it, I think I first heard about this while you were either on the water or hadn't started yet. I think maybe you were on the water. But regardless, it sounds like it it went off without a hitch. Is that right? Yeah, it was awesome. So cool. Well, I can't wait to dive into the details of this. So we're going to be talking about what the... People call it Southern Canada. I I still think of it as pretty far north, <laughs> the northern reaches of this continent. So we're going to be talking about what Lake Winnipeg is like, what it's like to grow up in that area. We're going to be talking about uh, kayaking and and what it's like to do that big of a trip and a lot of things like that. So let's kick this off, I guess, Alex. You, you say you grew up in the city of Winnipeg, right? Yeah, yeah, I grew up in the city of Winnipeg as well as uh, an area located on uh, the eastern side of the south base of Lake Winnipeg. So Lake Winnipeg, you said, is like an hour or something like that away? Yeah, yeah, about an hour's drive. Okay, and believe it or not, I did see Lake Winnipeg just barely when I was a year younger than you are now. 
<laughs> so I, I drove up there with a buddy in my 1968 Volkswagen. So I can, I can claim that I've at least seen it, but I have no memory of it really. So you're going to have to fill us in. What is Lake Winnipeg like? Yeah, Lake Winnipeg, uh, a lot, like a lot of people haven't, uh, haven't experienced it very much, even, even from uh, Manitobans. You know, people, if they have been to Lake Winnipeg, people tend to go to uh, the South Basin. The lake split into two basins, the North and the South. The North is uh, a lot more uh, remote. Uh, there are many communities located on the North Basin's shorelines, predominantly First Nations communities. And it is, uh, it is a lot larger and it's known for having bad weather. And then the South Basin's a little, it's the South Basin's smaller. It's what people mainly think of as cottage country. So you have a lot of very nice beaches that, uh, many Winnipeggers travel up to on the weekends and stuff like that. And that's mainly what people think of as Lake Winnipeg, especially when it comes to Winnipeggers. They think of, uh, you know, getting to sit down on the nice beach. You go when it's nice out, you go when it's sunny and there's no wind. So the lake is, uh, is calm and, that's what people tend to go for for recreation, whereas uh, myself, I like to push it and go on those windy days, whether it's windsurfing or kayaking, uh, and really get into uh, the big swells that Lake Winnipeg gets in the storm season. Mm. And there are a lot of islands in this lake as well. You have a feel for how many? There's a lot on the uh, eastern shoreline. Uh, the South Basin doesn't have too many. I would, like, ma- major islands, it's not like... Uh, Lake Superior. So my father grew up on Lake Superior and there's a lot of islands out there and they're all named, right? And uh, people will travel out to, uh, you know, like one island for lunch or uh, you'll take your canoe out and go island hopping. Uh, but the South Basin, there's there's a few massive, massive islands uh, that are home to recreational communities such as Hecla. Uh, Hecla Island, uh, there's Deer Island, Bear Island, uh, there's some in the North Basin that are uh, very popular, like Matheson Island. And then you get uh, more remote islands like George Island, which ends up being sailing destinations for uh, keel boats. And then there's a lot of very small islands on the East Shore that, uh, to me, when I was paddling through them, it was very much like experiences I've had on the East Coast, uh, and as well as some of the Great Lakes. I'd, I'd guess there'd be about uh, maybe... 30 major islands, very big to, uh, you know, the very, very small islands. And there'd, there'd be hundreds of small rocky islands on the east side. Wow. Well, I have uh, Wikipedia open because I wanted to be able to speak somewhat intelligently about this lake. Uh, it says that it's a relatively shallow lake, which it, I guess it averages uh, about 40 feet deep, something like that. Yep. And which is kind of interesting. That means that if the wind gets gets hauling, you probably have some huge swells. With huge that swells, like yeah, and, and they're very, very. Uh, they're known to be very difficult to uh, to paddle in. Uh, there is a saying uh, that I I'm not sure if it's Manitobans inflating their ego or not, but the saying is uh, if you can kayak or windsurf or sail uh, Lake Winnipeg, you can kayak or windsurf or sail anywhere and people usually fill in their own sports into whatever category that <laughs> <Right>. is um <laughs> it is because it's very shallow there is also many issues with timing for waves so when you go and uh surf on the ocean for example uh you're given the period between the waves i haven't been surfing on the ocean in a long time maybe like uh four seconds or something like that lake winnipeg you really get no break in between them so one of the major issues for it's a lot of fun for surfing or windsurfing because uh, it's it is a challenge. But uh, when you're in a kayak that's 18 feet long, if you have large swells and you're surfing one wave, you end up surfing four or five waves because they end up being so close together that you have very little trough and a period that's under one second or two seconds. Oh, that's crazy! That's something I would not have known nor thought of. So it means it's it's a uh, probably a little bit more chaotic. I mean, when it gets rolling, it's really rolling. Yeah, and it's uh, it's gained a lot of infamy for some of the ships that it's taken down. There there has been a lot of major shipwrecks on that lake. There's I can't, I can't remember the name of the ships for the life of me, but uh, there used to be very very large passenger ships that would go around the lake. Not so much around as uh, up and down, uh, coming out of Winnipeg and traveling onto uh, onto the lake. And there are ships 
that were known to be taken down by islands because uh, not everything is well marked. Uh, some of the maps aren't very accurate. But uh, if people are interested in actually seeing videos of some of the uh, the waves on the lake, there's a research vessel based out of a community on Lake Winnipeg called, and the community is called Gimli, but the ship is called the Nemeo. And it's run by uh, a research group. And they have a video on YouTube. And I don't know who's I don't know whose channel it's on, but uh, it it's a large, large ocean faring vessel, and you can see it just crashing through waves, and the waves are coming right up over top of their boat. Oh goodness! Uh, I've heard of sailors who, admittedly, people people are very, very bad at guessing the height of waves, but I had one sailor who told me that uh, they were up into twenty foot waves. I'm not sure what the largest recorded is on the lake, but. Uh, the North Basin, when it gets when it gets howling winds, you know, there's there's winds that are in excess of uh, 100 kilometers an hour uh, in some of the bigger storms, and that's like that that pushes waves way up. So yeah, wow, this could have gone very wrong if you were there at the wrong time. It sounds like the the weather must have been a little bit more uh, gentle for you. Yeah, the weather, the weather was awesome. Weather The weather tends to shift kind of late August. Uh, so I was up there working construction over the past few weeks, and that was, uh, there was wind every day and large waves. But just like some of the Great Lakes, that the Great Lakes tend to uh, start to get a little bit rough come fall. And so July and June are good times to be on Lake Winnipeg for, for kayaking. And, you know, I did get into a few big storms in the North Basin, but yeah, I, I, I did really luck out uh, with my trip. There, there has been one, uh, well, not one, there, there's many, many people who get stuck and windbound on the lake while paddling what's supposed to be three or four days. And one story I heard uh, in a community up north was that there was a guy who was paddling for, I think it was supposed to be something like a week uh, on the lake, and he got windbound and ended up staying something like a month and a half and went through all of his food supplies that were supposed to take him well beyond Lake Winnipeg and the rest of his uh, the rest of his route, and he ended up just getting windbound, couldn't move in his canoe. He was there in October with uh, with big wind and big waves, but yeah, I did really luck out. Wow! So just a few more bullet points about this lake, so people kind of get the scale of it. I'm glancing through this. Uh, first of all, I guess we should say how big it is. It is let's see, twenty four thousand five hundred square kilometers. 9,465 square miles. That's a big lake. This is big. And it is uh, Canada's sixth largest freshwater lake, the third largest freshwater lake that's entirely contained within Canada. Uh, Here's something I found really interesting. It's drainage, meaning the area that, you know, water goes into the lake and then continues on out. Its drainage is 40 times larger than its surface. It says that that's a ratio bigger than any other large lake in the world, and that leads to just a, a crazy amount of water coming out of the lake. I couldn't believe this when I saw this. 2,000 cubic meters per second flow out of the lake. Did you know that? I've kayaked that. The, uh, <laughs> it's, the, it's the Nelson River. It's uh, a, a lot of people asked if I went and visited a community up north, and I'd actually done that... Uh, in the year prior so 2017 and (laughs) you can we were eating lunch uh and floating in the boats and like you're just clipping down the shoreline it 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 moves very very quickly and when you pass by that uh that river mouth at the top of the north basin uh, i was told in one of the communities oh you know like you should be a kilometer offshore because you'll you'll feel it pull and I thought, oh, that's that's kind of silly. I, like, I think a kilometer is really pushing it. I'll I'll just be like well offshore, and I was probably around 750 meters, and uh, my stern actually, I could feel it start to get dragged back. Oh no! Uh, so there's there's two there's two exits for the Nelson River. Uh, the main Nelson that flows past uh, a small fishing outpost called Warren Landing, and then one that was put in. I believe by a, the hydro development project, which is called Two Mile Channel, and Two Mile Channel has a lot more. Like it's a substantial flow, and you'll see uh, you'll see if there's algae on the water, you'll actually see it pushing in towards uh, towards Two Mile Channel. So like, it's it's a it's a substantial flow rate. It's quite incredible. 
Yeah, that's just nuts. I mean, you think about it in feet per second, cubic feet per second, for the people in the uh, the English system, it's almost 73,000 cubic feet per second. <laughs> that's that's massive. So give us a, a, a human feel for the scale of this lake. We can read these numbers, and they kind of rattle around in our head, and we go, okay, it's big. We get it. But what's the perception of it? How big is big to you? There are many moments on my trip where looking out, you get the feel that you're looking out at an ocean. You, you don't see land anywhere. And it, it, like, it's, it's not, it, it's one thing to stand on a lake and not see any shoreline on the other side, but to go days on end uh, where all you see is straight shoreline on the left side of your kayak and everywhere else around you is water. It's, it, it's, to some degree, quite lonely. It's also, to me, it's fun. I took pictures and sent out a lot of, uh, a lot of photos when I was able to. And, you know, people are surprised and they say, they're like, oh, like, I would, <laughs> I would hate doing that. That looks terrible. Uh, but to me, and I'm sure all of your, uh, all of your listeners, it's like that, that's what we chase after. And so, like, I, I love that, uh, that feeling of like, uh, where it's you with the wilderness and there's, uh, there's just, you're alone out there. I, I love that feeling. Mm, yeah, it it's not for everyone, but people that enjoy it, I think they can really resonate with what you're saying. Yeah, I think I think it's very very hard to hard to to change the mindset that like it, like if you're if you're worried about being alone out there, it, if if you start off lonely on the trip, it doesn't get much better. Um, <laughs> and uh, it like I started at uh, I started in the South Basin, so I was paddling by cottage country a lot, and it it, it was kind of a nice. Uh, warm up into it because there are like there are portions where you know if, if it's I always say that uh, the, the best days for me mentality wise was the hard days because you're goal focused you're looking uh, to get to the next campsite and you're dealing with waves and wind but it's those flat days where there's nothing going on where it's just flat water and those are the days that are really challenging because all you can do is just paddle and there's nothing there to look at except uh, like straight shoreline of sand beach. Uh, and that, that's, that's when it kind of gets lonely when, when you have nothing else to do and your mind starts to drift. Mm, yeah, I can imagine. So when you get to the North Basin, I mean, that's the larger body of water, but it's also more remote. How does the landscape change? What does it look like up there? Uh, a lot of the landscape up there changes to uh, rock. And so it's also what I got a lot of messages for because people taking photos up there, people don't normally see some of those things. So there's uh, uh, like there's big limestone cliff walls, high cliff walls that, you know, like I, I can be paddling next to them. And again, it's, it's, it's hard to measure things from a kayak, but, uh, you know, you, you can look at trees along a shoreline. Those uh, those cliff walls are easily two or three stories high and they'll stretch for kilometers. And so it's uh, a lot of people think it's it's all just sand beach. But once you get up north, you have rocky shorelines where you can't land a kayak, especially in waves and uh, cliff walls that offer absolutely no security. Like you're uh, you just have to uh, keep pressing that out. And then, uh, yeah, marshlands, you get into a lot more marshes. Uh, the islands start. The islands were actually a, a great uh turning point for me because when the island started it was kind of my home stretch south and so making that run through the islands you go from a, a large open body of water to suddenly being enclosed in those uh, rocky islands and that that's really something I, I really like the diversity of all of that mm. so did you do the route clockwise is that the way that this Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. You know, on this show, we talk a lot about the adventure, but it's honestly the time between the adventure that is most important, being adventure ready, as we say. And the most important aspect of that is knowing your body and knowing what's going on inside your body. And the most important company that can help you do that is Inside Tracker, literally tracking what's going on inside your body. 
Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data and provides you with a clear picture of what exactly is going on so that you can make changes to your diet or see what's working, what isn't. And how they do it is they analyze all the data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to help you optimize your body and know what's really going on. So if you'd like to learn more or get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store, go to insidetracker.com slash adventure sports. That is insidetracker.com slash adventure sports. Inside Tracker can get you ready and keep you ready for all your favorite adventure sports. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Yeah, uh, went to, so I started a community called Grand Beach, which is about uh, a day's paddle uh, from the very bottom of the South Basin. It's located on the east side. So I went uh, down to the very bottom of the South Basin, north on the west side, and then over top on the North Basin, and then south on the east very cool. So <laughs> I am also looking at Google Maps right now so I can see some of what you're talking about. And I was just in that North Basin looking at that the cliff faces with lots of little rocky islands and hundreds and hundreds of little rocky islands you'd have to navigate through. And I was just thinking, well, are those rocky islands, those little ones, did that give you a place where you could land and camp? Or were they actually more of a nuisance because it was stuff you had to avoid? The, the major nuisance of those islands were it's a low water year this year. And uh, I've heard that it's three and a half feet uh, lower than uh, in previous years. Other people have said two and a half feet. So I'll, I'll call it three and a half feet because that sounds more dramatic. But uh, <laughs> the uh, there's there's islands that are uh, that are on that shoreline that aren't put on the map, whether it's because uh, low water year so. Uh, these reefs have become rocky shoals or because, uh, you know, the the islands just aren't well mapped. And so in some degree, it was difficult because they're, they're very hard to navigate through. Uh, and I've done a lot of navigation in other areas and other water bodies where the islands are a blessing because they're really easy to uh, to know where you are by looking at the map. But the inaccuracy of the island sometimes meant that I was figuring out where I was based on uh, the average speed I can move in my kayak and then figuring out how many hours I've been paddling for. Mm, okay. So, uh, dead reckoning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should say that's totally unreliable. Like, I, uh, I, I did have a, uh, I had a Garmin inReach, which is a satellite uh, device, and it allowed me to communicate with people, but also showed my location. And there were days where, to be honest, I, I, there are many days where I really didn't care where I was because as long as I'm not at the finishing point, I know I'm not moving backwards. Uh, and so I just keep paddling and then, you know, at the end of the day, check where I made it to so that I can compare it to uh, to where I think I am on the map. And you're always within like two or three kilometers. There, it's sorry to answer the to answer the original question. Like they were they were a blessing to some degree because they offered protection, big wins. On the other hand they became a nuisance because it, it is very difficult to navigate them. Mm. Wow. Do you have a, a, a mileage total? How far did you paddle? 1,672 kilometers. Wow. 1,672 kilometers. Probably give or take 15K easily. But uh, it was it's the shoreline. Interestingly, no one can agree on the shoreline distance. If you check... Uh, a government website versus I think Wikipedia and like the Canadian federal government's website. It, it varies between uh, 1800 kilometers and 1700 kilometers and 1750. But once I had it all mapped out, it was just under 1700. So you're just pretty darn close to a thousand miles. That's kind of the, where it translates to. That's a long way in a lake, one lake. <laughs> That's pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. So I got to kind of get back to the backstory here. We kind of have a feel for the size of this, but why did you decide to do it? I mean, here you are, you decided to do this before you were even 18 years old. What inspired you? Well, a, a few things. One, it was uh, to raise awareness for watered stewardship. The lake is known now for being, I, th I think damaged is a good way to put it. 
there's two main issues right now. One is zebra mussels, an invasive species that uh, attaches to boats, and that, that's one major concern. They're washing up on beaches now in, in the millions, and they're, they cut people's feet, which is, in my mind, uh, a smaller concern. But they, they are also clogging pipes, uh, destroying docks, uh, attaching to hulls. Like they, they terribly affect the ecosystem. Uh, and then another is uh, the algae and algae blooms are very significant on Lake Winnipeg. They have been for a while, uh, but there is one specific type of algae uh, called blue green algae. And that uh, that's, that is toxic. Uh, smells terrible. We just had another bloom in the South basin. And uh, I mean, you can be driving two or three kilometers uh, away from the lake on the highway and still get a whiff of uh, it smells kind of like a rotting, uh, rotting plant. Mm. Uh, and so, so they're like the lake, uh, that's kind of like the background of the lake's issues. But, uh, so I want to raise awareness for water stewardship, specifically targeting people who are in high schools and elementary schools. Uh, because I think that, you know, although there's been a great deal of work done with promoting conservation uh, for both Lake Winnipeg and its watershed, the target audience tends to be uh, people who are significantly older. Might be uh, it's all it all it all gears towards tax-paying citizens and people who vote uh, about like which politicians are going to favor uh, Lake Winnipeg in the next election and who you can phone as a tax-paying citizen and what this will mean for the future of your taxes or the value of your land. But it doesn't really target uh, someone in grade four, right? Because why would a why would a grade four care about uh, you know they're raising tax prices uh, to help save the lake? That might be something that they can understand because they hear their parents talking about it, but it it's not something that's uh, very specific to them. And so my hope was that by doing these presentations, that uh, people would then see it as you know like here's someone else who's was previously under the age of eighteen, <laughs> and look what he's doing. To, to a lot of the takeaway that the students had wasn't so much about, uh, oh, I have to be careful to drain my boat of zebra mussels. It was more, I took what I loved, which is kayaking, and used it to bring around a message. And that that's what they really liked about it. It helped promote uh, kind of Lake Winnipeg as an outdoors hub. And hopefully, like the, one of my one of my fears is that, uh, you know, in my lifetime, Lake Winnipeg will die as a tourism hub. It, it is a great outdoors lake. Uh, it is like it's a great kiteboarding lake. Uh, it's known for its kiteboarding, its windsurfing, its sailing. It's not well known for its kayaking, really, but uh, kayaking, canoeing on the lake, uh, fishing is well known. Uh, and so in order to just encourage that uh, that future of uh, recreation on the lake, as well as it, like the trip was just tons of fun. It's something I've wanted to do for a few years. And so it was, it was kind of a bucket list item too. Neat. <laughs> There's a lot there. So the blue-green algae blooms that are happening, is that naturally occurring? Is it effect of something going on like uh, nitrates getting dumped into the lake or what's causing that? Do you know? Eutrophication. So it's uh, a lot of, lot of phosphorus in the lake. And so it's... Uh, I'm gonna call out my home city here of Winnipeg, and uh, there it's in the news more and more now that uh, we have a treatment plant in Winnipeg, and uh, I can't speak too scientifically on it. There, there's people who are a lot more capable of doing that than myself. But uh, last I heard, it was four times, I believe, four times the amount of uh, of phosphorus coming out of that plant than is the current standard. But the issue is that it's going to cost a huge amount of money to fix that. Uh, and so it's like the, one of the things that, uh, that people are working towards is targeting taxpayers and saying, here's something that you need to consider for the future, that we do need to repair this treatment plant uh, and get this underway. That's kind of like how it's causing and what it's one of the things it's coming from. But there's also tests being done, uh, whether it's by that uh, research vessel, they're one of the groups doing research as well as uh, a group called Lake Winnipeg Foundation, who I partnered with for my trip. And they're sending out people with test sample kits uh, and going around the province and uh, testing different uh, sources on the uh, watershed of Lake Winnipeg to see whether there's high levels of phosphorus or 
they're doing a lot of like uh, chemical testing around the province. That's kind of a uh, kind of a volunteer type of uh, type of thing where people are collecting these test samples and going around the province. And and that's been that's been great because they're collecting a lot of a lot of samples, a lot of evidence, and that's being used in the future for uh, and currently for scientific research. Uh, and it's also that vessel that I mentioned earlier, the one with uh, the big waves on YouTube. They uh, they collect information on where where certain chemicals and certain like phosphorus, for example, phosphorus is a really big uh, really big thing on Lake Winnipeg right now. What water body that's coming out of? Because as you mentioned, there's one very very large exit for lake for water on the lake, the Nelson River. But there's many many rivers that flow into the lake, uh, rivers, creeks, streams, and it's identifying which ones are. Uh, contributing the most towards basically pollution on the lake, uh, whether it's in the form of microplastics or the blue-green algae, untreated wastewater. And it's been found that the Red River uh, is a source of that. And the Red River flows right through Winnipeg. Uh, it's where that water treatment plant is, or the waste treatment plant. And so there, like that, that's something that's been identified, uh, and now it's taking it to the next step politically and saying, okay, how do we how do we turn this into a political standing where in the future of uh, provincial municipal politics this can be used uh, as a platform and encourage people to vote based on fixing this uh, North Water Treatment Plant. You know, I I'm going to speak beyond my knowledge. I'm telling everyone right now, but. There have been studies done around Colorado that say the oil and gas industry is worth so many, you know, dollars per year to the Colorado economy. And then they look at tourism. And tourism dwarfs the economic impact of the oil and gas industry. And so what people are saying is, why are we looking at a short-term damage to the land that will hurt our long-term uh, biggest economic impact, which would be tourism. And I don't even know if those numbers are fabricated. That's why I say I'm, I'm speaking beyond my knowledge. But I bring that up as an example. It's really easy for people to uh, come up with all sorts of numbers and facts and figures to try to promote their cause. But it might be that the long-term benefits of tourism on the lake outweigh the cost of repairing this waste treatment plant and others. To the point that it's just a no-brainer if we just look a little farther down the timetable. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and uh, one of the things I should mention to uh, price point, which I just looked up, it's uh, it's estimated over one billion to uh, to repair that uh, North End sewer treatment plant. One billion for a municipal government uh, where Winnipeg is. That's big. <laughs> yeah, like that, that, that's a lot of money. That's big. and so and so uh, encouraging people to what would probably inevitably be a large tax increase. And I mean, again, this is, I'm, I'm just a kayaker. I'm not a poly, a political scientist or a, a, or in any way involved with government stuff, but that, that like, that is a large, uh, that's large bill to foot. Uh, and so I think encouraging people that, uh, you know, don't give up on Lake Winnipeg and that Lake Winnipeg is still part of, uh, is still part of this province is something that could hopefully encourage, uh, encourage people to, consider footing that bill and creating a new wastewater treatment plant or just simply making the upgrades uh, to bring it up to uh, what is now considered the current standard. Yeah, well, with numbers like that, and I'm not going to dive into the politics of this, but it really needs to be viewed as a national treasure, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah so it's, it's, it's not, a, not a municipal problem anymore. This is a national problem. For sure. And it's uh, if I remember correctly from the presentations, uh, it's been a few months since I've done one of those, but it's uh, Lake Winnipeg's watershed is just massive. It's uh, one million square kilometers uh, and then home to, I believe, seven million people. Uh, and it covers four provinces and four states. So it's a very, very large watershed uh, for this lake. And I mean, even if we all if we start to start with small things, uh, seven million people, that's a large community that can definitely uh, we can start to see real solutions. Mm, I love it. I love it. Well, let's dive into the trip itself, man. We have danced around this, but we got to hear the stories. How many days did it take? Uh, well, I started June 27th and finished August 3rd. Uh, and then this is this is where it gets complicated. It was uh, 27 paddling days. 
28 days if you include one day that was down for weather. But of course, if you're doing the math along, that's not equal to August uh, to June 27th to August 3rd. Uh, so I did spend a large amount of time in communities up north uh, researching uh, stories, taking pictures and taking videos and doing interviews. Uh, that's all being forwarded to the organizations that I partnered with, as well as being used in the future for our presentations. Cool. So as an 18-year-old, how did this impact your your perception of this part of the world and perception of humanity itself? Well, first off, uh, I graduated high school at the end of June. This trip uh, was kind of my endpoint of high school. And so I'd gone from, I'd grad on, uh, wait, this big grad dance, kind of like prom, uh, on the Monday. And I left on a Wednesday early in the morning. And so I had, uh, I, I had one day to trade a suit jacket to a paddling jacket and uh, get out on the water everyone's geared towards university or college or trades and getting a job. Uh, meanwhile, I, I was planning on abandoning life for two months and kayaking around a lake. And so it, uh, it, like it was for one, it was a thrill and it was like, it was something that I've been doing every summer. I've been do, doing big trips every summer and it was now making it into uh and making it have a larger purpose as well as, a. Uh, one of the one of the greatest things I found was just the hospitality everywhere around the lake. Uh, you know, we tell our kids stranger danger. And meanwhile, I was spending nights with people that I like I've never met before, and they'd see me on the beach and say like, "Oh, I know you. We saw you on the news. Come in, have a bite to eat, and a place to stay." And they'd put a mattress out on the floor for me, and I, you know, sleep in someone's living room, uh, someone I've never met before which probably isn't a great idea in retrospect, but it was fantastic, especially when you go from uh, being in a tent for a few weeks and, you know, the, there, there weren't, there wasn't too much, uh, too much rain, but uh, you know, your gear gets wet, your gear, get, your gear gets smelly. And so having a chance to not sleep in a sleeping bag is just, is just fantastic. And so the, the hospitality, the South Basin is mainly cottage country. And that was uh, almost all of that uh, where I stayed were, it was with people that I had uh, I had previously planned to stay with, uh, friends of the family and stuff like that. Once I started getting further north, uh, I had previously contacted, like then uh, January of 2018, so like months before I'd left on my trip, I had contacted all the First Nations communities on Lake Winnipeg and asked permission to uh, come onto the land and meet with people. Uh, and they were super generous. They offered me a bunch of information about uh, the lake surrounding their communities. Everyone was very welcoming, gave me a place to stay. And I would show up in these communities and, you know, I wouldn't know a single person there. And, you know, I within a few minutes, I'd have people come by who recognized me because they had heard a few months ago that, oh, you know, there's some crazy guy kayaking around the lake and, uh, you know, he's, he's coming over to see us. And so they, the people I'd never met before offering me places to stay, food to eat. I like the, the, the best moment for me was I'd arrived on a shoreline and I had it was just a, it was one of those rough days where the, the weather and wind, the weather was terrible. The wind and waves weren't too bad, but it was just pouring rain. Uh, and I was thinking, wow, I, I'd hate to set up a tent in this. And uh I arrived in a community, Jackhead First Nation, and they said, uh, they said, oh, yeah, like, no, don't set up your tent yet. We'll find you a place to stay. We'll get you food to eat. And they were super, super generous. Same with there's a First Nations community called Missipoistic on the in the north shore uh, of the North Basin. And I'd arrived at the nursing station because there's a nice green grassy area that I would planned on setting setting up a tent. And someone came by and said, hey, uh, don't camp here you have a place to stay at my house. Never met him before in my life. Uh, and then he took three days to tour me around, found other people that I could talk to, find out stories and stuff like that. Uh, and drove to, uh, drove to just all sorts of places around the community and around, uh, around the uh, North basin there. And that, that was just incredible. So I think the hospitality that people offer is, it's, it's just, it's something incredible. You know, statistically, it's it's kind of hard to to pinpoint exactly, but you hear numbers like ninety percent of the people in the world are just really great people. 
you know, who who care for their fellow human and, and that sort of thing. There's somewhere around 10% that might be a little bit more nefarious, and there's 1% that you kind of have to watch out for. But what that tells us is that, you know, even that 10% that may not always be on the up and up are generally going to treat you right. <laughs> and so we're talking about 99% of humanity that can be reasonably trusted, you know, and we forget that, you know, we, we were taught as kids that the world can be a dangerous place, but the reality is, is that it's almost all safe. It's mostly safe. It's really just that 1% you got to watch out for. And I love it when I hear from people like you who go out and say, well, I met this perfect stranger. And next thing you know, I'm sleeping in this house. He takes three days off. He shows me around. I met all these people. It was amazing. You know, that's, that's the story about humanity that I like to hear. I think it's just pretty cool. So did it change your perception then of people? Do you, do you think the world is a safer place now? Yeah, I, I still probably wouldn't just sleep at anyone's house in Winnipeg. I think that'd be a bit of a reach. But uh, <laughs> the uh, there's there's something called northern hospitality, and uh, that's a term that's uh, I, I think sometimes it tends to be thrown around a lot without uh, uh, without very much concentration of like the meaning behind it. But you get into northern communities, and everyone looks out for each other. Another one of my favorite stories was there's there's a small harbor in a section between the South Basin and the North Basin that's called the Narrows. And I'd arrived there in a kayak and uh, well, sorry, of course, I'd arrived there in the kayak, but kayaked up there and there's a harbor there and there's there's two boats left in the harbor. It's, uh, the end of fishing season it had closed on July 10th, I think, or something like that. And so I arrived, no boats around. There's no community around it either. It's just a it's just a harbor where people uh, park their boats and they drive to wherever they live. And, you know, there's a sign that says, uh, no camping violator. Anyone who violates this will be prosecuted or something like that. And, uh, uh, you know, the number to contact if you're landing a boat there. And it was about uh, maybe around eight o'clock at night. And uh, those phone numbers are all after 530. No one's picking up those phones. Uh, and so I pitched a tent on the grassy area and thought, you know, I, middle of nowhere, I assume that anyone who would come by would have a little bit of uh a heartwarming decency and uh, let me stay there. And uh, so I packed up, went to bed, uh, flipped the kayak over in the bushes, sitting in my tent and uh, I hear a truck come up and someone said, I could hear someone say, well, what, would you look at that? And I thought, uh Oh, that's probably the Harbor master coming to give me a rough time for camping. Uh, so got out of the tent, walked up and uh, these two people sitting in a truck looking at me and uh, the guy looks at me and goes, where are you headed? And I said, uh, I said, Grand Beach, which <laughs> must have looked really strange because I was about 450 kilometers away from there. And the, guy, the guy's got the guy's eyes kind of like widen up and, uh, and his wife goes, well, where are you? Uh, where are you headed to tomorrow? And I said, Matheson Island, which is uh, one of those, what the big populated island in the North Basin. And uh, yeah, they said they said oh well like you know there's bad weather tomorrow we wish you the best of luck i said thank you very much went back into the tent around maybe 9 30 10 o'clock i wake up to these high beams pointed into my tent my my gut reaction was like oh this 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 isn't gonna be good and so i got changed got out of the tent uh and the same couple's back there and the guy goes didn't want to uh, didn't want to shake the tent to wake you and think that there was a bear so we thought we'd shine light in and he goes, we brought you food. <laughs> and I said, food for what? And they go, well, you know, there's the storm coming in tomorrow. And, uh, you know, if you don't make it to Matheson, we want to make sure that you have enough food. Meanwhile, I had a week of extra food left in the kayak. And so I told them that we had a good laugh over that. But they had brought me uh, fresh cooked apple pie, apple juice and orange juice because they weren't sure which one I would like. Uh, they also brought me a can of, I think it was Pepsi, two bags of chips and then fresh fruit. And so they, I, I had a laugh with them and said, like, oh, that's very generous, but I don't need it. And uh, the wife's response was, neither do we. And so we ended up eating an apple pie in the back of their truck at uh, at 10 at night, really just the middle of nowhere. And so like that, that hospitality, like they had never met me before. And after maybe a 30 second conversation, they cooked me an apple pie and brought it over. And that was that was really something that was just one of the best moments I've ever had. <laughs> that's wonderful. I love stories like that, man. That's a beautiful thing. That's so cool. And I, I actually, interestingly, uh, I met their cousins 
on my way back because you, you have to pass through the narrows again uh when you finish the north basin and, and it's about uh maybe a mile across uh from either side and i ran into uh just by chance ran into their cousins who were fishing there and I, they brought their boat over to my kayak and said hey we think we know you and i <laughs> i said well they go okay where do you know me from they said that uh, our cousin saw you at the harbor and <laughs> they brought you food. Our whole community has been following along. We didn't think you were going to make it. We're really happy you made it this far. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, like they'd shared on Facebook that they, that I saw the Facebook post. They said something like, we, we saw this guy who thinks he's going to kayak around the lake. He seems like he's well prepared. Uh, and it'd been like, it'd been reshared so many times and, uh, people were commenting on it. And so, uh, you know, if people didn't recognize me off of uh, what I look like. They recognized me off of uh, this picture of a kayak on the on this couple's Facebook page. That's just a you know an eighteen foot blue kayak with a bunch of stickers on it, and that's how people knew me. So <laughs> that's fun. That's fantastic. You know, here's the cool thing about it too. You realize that. You did something, and some people would say, well, why'd you do that? That's just some stunt. But I don't see it that way. You do something for a life experience, and you decide to make it meaningful, maybe to raise awareness about, you know, water preservation. And pretty soon, there's this momentum that builds behind it, and people discover what you're doing. And, you know, it, it creates a wave in the consciousness of society, a wave that can make a difference, that can crash on someone's shore, and you don't know who that's going to be. You, you might change a life. You might change an attitude. You might provide hope for a lot of people just because you shared your story. So why not do it? I think that's one of the most beautiful things about adventure sports that it often goes overlooked. By doing some of these things, you can actually make far-reaching impacts in places you would never anticipate. So that's really cool. You know, you got a little buzz going around your trip and and people were watching what you're up to and that's that's just fantastic. Yeah, I've I've just like, you know, the, the beauty behind this trip was that uh strangely for some people it seemed to uh mean a lot of people it meant just as much to them as it did to me and then strangely some people it meant more to them than it uh than I ever set out uh to have it mean for me. And you know, like I I have different reasons for for loving uh, having done this trip. Meanwhile, like there's people who, uh, yeah, everyone finds their own connection to this trip. Uh, whether it's, uh, watching me pass through, you know, the community that they're originally from or, uh, where their grandfather used to, uh, be a commercial, uh, fisher or where their grandmother used to have a trapping line. And that, like that, that's their, that's their big takeaway from it. And I, I think it's just unique to, to find people's different perspectives on uh, on what beauty in the outdoors means to them. Yeah, that's great. And so what about the natural impact? You spent a lot of time... Let's, let, let me ask this question first. What was the longest period of time that you were alone, that you didn't see other people? Uh, well over a week. I <laughs> just got to think this back in my head. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, I think 12 days. 12 days. So that's a pretty good stretch. That gives you plenty of time to get into the rhythm of nature and to have that experience. Um, what was it like? What is the, that solitude like? What was nature like in that area? And, and how did that impact you? Um, I've often said that uh, I was on this radio show before I left and I'd opened it up to people to send me emails and contact me with, uh, you know, comments, questions, concerns. There was a lot of people who were you know, like whether they made it public or not, we're definitely going to be rather dubious of this because this is like a rather dangerous undertaking, especially when people, uh, you know, equate my age to, well, I have an 18 year old son named Jason and he plays video games in his living room and he wouldn't survive this. So he won't survive this either. And a lot of people would make those type of comments uh, on a public forum that, you know, it's not appropriate for me to respond to. So I, my hope was that people would send me emails with concerns and stuff like that. And I could hopefully answer that so that they wouldn't go through the whole summer with the thought that this is a dangerous undertaking where the guy's going to die. And so I like I'd opened it up. And one of the emails I got was this lake doesn't care if you're alive or dead. Uh, don't <laughs> wow. do it or something like that. Yeah, it was, it was like very dramatic. And so uh you know, my response to that is like, if it doesn't care if you're alive or dead, that doesn't mean that it's out to kill you. 
you, you kind of get this mindset when you're out on the trip that the lake the lake watches out for you to some regard i think there's many people have a very deep spiritual connections to that lake and uh I, I think you talk to a lot of people and they'll all agree that uh you know if you're out there for a good reason uh the lake does uh the lake does really watch out for you and your best interests so mm, interesting interesting so you had a real strong connection with the with the lake and with the land then mhm wow and uh, it, i always I guess I, I am humored. I, I think it's funny when people say, oh, he's only 18. He shouldn't do this. And But, you know, there's no reason not to if you're prepared. <laughs> well, what am I going to do? Do it when I'm 30 and have a full-time job? Who's going to... I, I I highly doubt I'm going to find an employer who goes, oh, yeah, sure, take two months off to kayak around a lake. So this was this was the best time to do it for me. So I love it. I love it. Well, and I, another question I had to ask was, what about your folks? What did your parents say? <laughs> I've admitted this before, so I think I can admit this now. Uh, I started planning this in September. My mom found out about it in November, and then my dad found out about it when we were all on a family uh, on a family vacation in Costa Rica uh, <laughs> at a moment that I thought, like, wow, he, he seems like he could slowly adjust to this concept. And so I think I told him, and it would be end of December, early January. And so it was a lot of the foundation was already there for the trip. A lot of the planning had already been done, and I contact. Uh, it was, I let him know, and I told him about it <laughs> around the dining room table. And I think his his first response was something like, "Mm-hmm." You know, didn't uh, my parents were anticipating this because I've been talking about this for the past few years? But I think my my parents also thought that this was going to be something that, like, you know, it's it's one of those things that you keep thinking would be a great idea, but you never really commit to it. But, uh, you know, after after they settled into the idea that this was something I really wanted to do, they were incredibly supportive. I, I think a lot of parents and I, I think it's true now more than ever, as their child's uh, success grows in a sport, so does their apparent knowledge in it. Uh, so you'll talk to someone who uh, who is a kid who plays hockey and, you know, the parents never played before, but suddenly they're a professional coach. And my parents have a real gift of not doing that. They they do know that like, you know, like the, they fall back on uh, what I kind of believe. And so, you know, like I don't have uh, I, I, I th- I've very much been gifted with having parents that, that allow me to make my own decisions, trust my knowledge on stuff. Uh, and as well, like when I, I, I chose uh I, I was stuck between two kayaks. I didn't know which one I was going to take for this. Uh, I wanted to get a new boat for the trip, and I was stuck between the Rockpool Terran and the PNH Cetus MV. And I, like, I was just torn. I could not decide for the life of me. And uh, my dad sat down and he phoned all. He phoned different ambassadors for the two companies who use these kayaks. And he looked through all the reviews online and he looked at, uh, you know, not just reviews from uh, the common cons- consumer, but also from engineers and stuff like that about uh, the durability and reliability and how it uh, goes through the water and how it's going to be once it's packed. And so he he helped me make that final decision to go for the Cetus. And uh, like <laughs> they're my parents, I consider them a gift to to being able to do what uh, what I've done in my life. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, I would like to say for those who are listening, who uh, maybe they they are parents, if you teach your children well, teach them how to be independent and make wise decisions, and then you empower them to make those decisions, then you know kids get to this point of being able to do amazing things at what some people might say is a relatively young age. It's just the way it works. But if you always tell your kid, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, I got to take care of you. I got to, no, no, don't do that. You'll get hurt. You know, then the the kids never learn it, you know? So you, your parents certainly must have worked hard to make sure that you were the kind of guy that was empowered to make decisions and try things and, and that they were there to catch you if you fail. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they, uh... I, I should also say that they're like they're also very outdoorsy. Like they, this wasn't just uh, like my my parents haven't sat around uh, inside of a house their whole lives. When I was super young, we were climbing uh, 
Mount Assiniboine and Mount Robson. I did the West Coast Trail with my dad when I was 10. And, uh, you know, like my dad, when I was in, I think I was in grade two or grade three, he was looking at traveling to Antarctica. My parents have both done big kayaking trips in Alaska. My mom's very big into canoeing. Uh, and so like this wasn't this wasn't a totally new concept for them. Like it wasn't a, I wasn't throwing them into the outdoors world, which has been great because I think if like if not for my parents helping me or inspiring me through my whole life with uh, with getting outdoors, this wouldn't uh, this wouldn't have been a thing. Uh, but they also uh, they're also open to new ideas, which is nice. Not just this trip, but both my parents have gotten into whitewater kayaking after I got into kayaking. But like you know, they're not they're not running class four rapids. They're not trying to go down to the states to run waterfalls and stuff like that. They're happy to pat me on the back after I after I go and run waterfalls, but uh, they're not uh, they're open to trying things and open to new ideas, and that's what uh, that's what's really helped me grow in the outdoors world. Mm, Very, very cool. Well, we're running out of time, darn it. I'd love to keep on talking to you more and more about this. How about this? Close us out with something that surprised you about the trip, something you didn't expect to happen that was impactful for you. Sure. Uh, I I think one of the best things was uh, being able to work with companies and organizations. It's it's going to sound like a massive sponsor pitch and it's not meant to, but to, you know, like organizations like uh, I worked with three organizations on the trip, like Winnipeg Foundation, uh, Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, their Manitoba chapter, as well as uh, what's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site called Pomacho Naki on the in the North Basin of Lake Winnipeg. And, you know, when I contacted those organizations, I was 17 and uh, it was with kind of what what wasn't really a concrete trip yet because I like I had all my maps planned out. I knew where I was staying, but. I asked them to be a part of this ride and they were like, they were more than willing and it it is a dangerous trip. And like, they're just their, their willingness to, their willingness to be part of it and also to see the value in having this educational opportunity with having a 17 year old present to, uh, to other high schoolers about, about this trip, as well as uh, I worked with four, companies that sponsored me a company called gear lab paddles which is based out of taiwan uh gort bars which is this energy bar based out of manitoba so a local company uh wilderness supply out of winnipeg and uh wind paddle sales out of the u.s and all of the all four of those companies you know i like i reached out to them you know I, like i've done a lot of trips but nothing that's that's been i i, I guess profitable is the good word no, nothing that uh, that a company can go like wow, look at uh, look at this, uh, and so like they they all those companies put a lot of trust in me. You know, Gear Lab Gear Lab's been incredible, and like it's you know a company out of Taiwan that like I reached out to them, 17 years old, and said, you know, like I love paddling Greenland paddles. I know that you guys make a strong carbon fiber option. Is there any chance you would let you would sponsor my trip? And I was expecting a responsive. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll take twenty dollars off or something like that. And the response I got back was, "Sure, how would you like to be a brand ambassador for Gear Lab?" Nice. Uh, and yeah, and they uh, and they wrote a bunch of press releases and stuff like that, and they got the word out. And like that, that's one of the things that's important to me about this trip. It wasn't about. It's not about being a commercial aspect. This wasn't meant to be a. Uh, I didn't want my face on the cover of something. I wanted it to be about Lake Winnipeg. And all these companies respected that. And, you know, Gear Lab drove to have my articles published and stuff like that. And the amount of people that that reached is just incredible. And it, like it, it takes it outside of the Canadian border and makes it an international uh, an international event. Uh, same with Gorp. They like they also wrote stuff on their blog and stuff like that. And the amount of backing that I had from these companies and organizations, the amount of trust that they gave me for like a 17 year old that uh, like I've, I've done big trips before, but you know, this, this is, this is something that's totally new. And this was a trip that there was no guarantee whether or not I would finish it. And they, they put their trust in me. And I thought that was just incredible. Mm, I love it. That's very, very cool. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time today to come and tell us at the adventure sports podcast about your trip and what you did. It's inspiring. I think that, uh, people realize, you know, there, there are things that are out there that are possible. If I dream a little bigger, maybe those things could happen. So 
thanks for doing it. Thanks for inspiring us. And thank you for the time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh yeah, you bet, man. And for all the listeners out there, wow, right? Battling around Lake Winnipeg. I, uh, I just think it's a fantastic feat. And I want to congratulate Alex for doing it. But, you know, let that be a seed for a dream of your own and, and send those waves out yourself. You never know what shores those waves will crash on and what a difference it might make in the lives of another. So until the next show, make sure that you do get out there and have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.